Today, I'm joined by Clifford A. Kirikoff, uh, who is an educator, uh, former senior professional staff member at the US, US Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, uh, and uh, he has taught at various uh, at, at academic institutions in the UK, including uh, Virginia Military Institute and uh, at Washington and Lee Universities. So uh, welcome to the UK column, Cliff. Um, the topic for today is Christian Zionism, and uh, you have written a book on that. Uh, it's entitled Dark Crusade, Christian Zionism and US Foreign Policy. Now, I just want to get kicked off with a little piece of video which you sent me uh, a couple of uh, a week or two ago, um, just to, to set the scene of the type of Christian Zionism that the United States is seeing uh, at the moment. So let's just have a look at this, and then I'm going to ask you for some comment. Israel should make the Gaza Strip a parking lot by this time next week. Destroy the whole thing. And anybody that's going to support this Hamas nonsense. Listen, Joe Biden ought to be tried for treason. You understand that? Now, I get it. I get it. I get it. He... Obama's the real president behind him anyhow, and so he's the one that ought to be tried for treason. So I, I hope Netanyahu's a leader and he just mows the whole thing down by this time next week. If you think all this open border stuff is not an opportunity for a bunch of Hamas sleeper cells to come into this nation right now and start killing innocent men, women, and children, you have lost your mind. I'm sick of all these Christians saying we ought to have peace with Islam. Islam is a satanic death cult and they would cut your head off before I said amen in this sermon if they had a chance to. The Muslim religion hates Jewish people to the core of who they are. What they ought to do is evacuate up there on the hill and get a great big missile and blow that wicked dome of the rock plumb off of the spot where it's standing right now so we can get that third temple rebuilt and usher in the coming of Jesus. Th that video of that woman that survived the Holocaust in a wheelchair, they snatched her up. Kidnapped a Holocaust survivor by somebody with American dollars in their pocket from a corrupt government that should have been smoked out months ago when they stole the election to begin with. Yes, I said it. So, uh, Cliff, as I say, welcome to the program. Um, that is quite a spectacular piece of video. Um, what are your thoughts on it and how, how far does that type of attitude rise uh, in U.S. politics? Well, um, let's think some con context here. First of all, in the last uh, month or so, we've had about 20,000 Palestinians murdered uh, by Israel and maybe 35, 40,000 wounded and destruction of hospitals, apartment buildings, infrastructure, schools, etc. So that's the context, present context of those remarks. As you could tell from his um, accent, it's a southern accent, and uh, he's uh, where Christian Zionism has been very strong, or traditionally. Uh, we can get into that. Um, and uh, you can see that he's um, unhinged, 
Uh, but that is considered uh, normal good preaching uh, within this Christian Zionist cult. And um, as you can also see, he's preaching genocide, beyond violence, genocide, and um, talking in apocalyptic terms. Um, so we can start. <laughs> we can start with that uh, as a as a beginning to our conversation. It's a. It's a. Yes, it's a shocking video, but that's normal. Normal uh, within this American subculture. In this particular case, it looks to me like the setting is in a lower middle class type Southern setting of some kind. Uh, you see, he has some musicians for that, you know, his band, uh, etc. Uh, so we have to bear in mind the cultural context um, as well, and we can get into that also uh, as we as we go on. I mean, is it fair to say that that uh, the type of uh, demographic that that he represents and, the, and that uh, crowd represents um, would be uh, Republican? Uh, clearly, he was attacking Biden and so on. So, so that certainly hints at that. But is is that a, is that a, the general position that's coming from the Republican side of U.S. politics? And and is it something that's confined to to the southern states, or is it something that's actually right across the country? I think um, this extreme uh, fundamentalism uh, is not generally accepted in either the uh, Republican Party or the Democratic Party. What we're looking at here uh, is a um, an apocalyptic death cult that within the Christian church, whether it's Roman Catholic, Orthodox, or mainstream Protestant, or Coptic, uh, for for or any of the Middle Eastern churches is considered a heresy. So this is not Christian as normally defined by uh, the mainstream uh, Christian churches across the world, including those in um, the Holy Land in Palestine. Um, I will say, though, that there are some in Congress and in the Senate who may actually believe this type of end times apocalyptic um, ideology. I would just say that our new um, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mr. Johnson, has said himself from the very first day he got in, basically, that, quote, uh, we're Christians, so we should support Israel, unquote. So that, that's the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I would also note that in the Senate, in a legislation um, to support Israel, uh, the vote recently was to support Israel in, in this uh, Gaza genocide. Uh, the vote was 97 to zero. I'm assuming three to zero were uh, necessarily absent. So 97 senators out of 100, in our case, uh, voted to support um, all the actions of uh, Israel uh, in, this, in their genocidal policy uh, recently, since October 7, in, uh, in, in Gaza. So in answer to your question, yes, indeed, um, this 
apocalyptic death cult ideology does appear in um, certain congressmen and potentially senators. The Speaker of the House himself is from Louisiana, a southern state on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, his attitude reflects this type of um, uh, this type of support for I Israel among fundamentalists. Now, let me say that the so-called evangelical movement is is very large, and within the evangelical Christian movement, uh, there's a left, a center, and a right. So here we're starting on the right-hand side. Within the right-hand side, we have um, various degrees of rightness, <laughs> extremists, and the most extreme, which is the one I was writing my book about, the most extreme um, are what's called the dispensationalists. And that cult started in the United Kingdom in the 1820s and 30s. So in answer to your question about political parties, yes, this is certainly part of the, say, Trump base, uh, of which there are many components. But this, this type of um, Christian Zionism would be part of a conservative base in the United States. Um, and it would be considered, in, just like you saw in that film clip, it would be considered normal in uh, certain cultural subcultures in the United States. Uh, well, since you've brought up a dispensationalism, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the origins of this, because as you say, it, be, it began in the in the UK, uh, and uh, well, I believe it began because you can see uh, the the lighthouse behind me, uh, because we are in Plymouth, um, and uh, so uh, Plymouth Brethren and and John Nelson Darby. Let's uh, tell tell us a little bit about the origins of this. Well, um, when I was researching the book. Uh, I, uh, and I, the reason I wrote the book, uh, I started working on it in 2005, just after the United States entered the Iraq War. And I had noticed the Christian Zionists pushing for the Iraq War. So in my research, I came across uh, Father Stephen Sizer, Father Sizer, who I think you've interviewed, and uh, his book, which I'm holding in my hand. And that was a great influence on me in terms of identifying the origins uh, of this uh, apocalyptic death cult. And it turns out that a wealthy banker by the name of Drummond, who lived in Surrey, uh, had an estate called Albury, and he gathered a group of friends together to speculate on uh, religious topics. Uh, I don't think they had Ouija boards, but they were close to that type of a group. And uh, that group invented the basic ideology of Christian Zionism, uh, dispensationalism. Um, there are other groups of Christians who support Israel for humanitarian purposes. I was not writing about them. I was writing about the most militant group, which is the dispensationalists, who have the most impact on Congress and Washington. At any rate, the uh, Albury Circle of Banker Drummond who was quite eccentric and traveled all over the Middle East looking for lost tribes and all manner of um, <laughs> idiosyncratic things back in the day. Out of that group came a fellow by the name of uh, John Nelson Darby. And you can Google Albury Circle, it's on Wiki. You can Wiki Darby, John Nelson Darby, D-A-R-B-Y. Uh, you can Wiki Dispensationalism. 
uh, as a quick start, you can also buy my book, but uh, as a quick start, you can do that. Darby was a defrocked priest from the Church of Ireland and kind of a eccentric, to put it mildly. Darby picked up the concepts that the Albury Circle developed, Edward Irving and others within that circle, and developed them into a theory that there are five or seven periods of human history. And we're living in the last kind of period of human history. And that's the end times. And uh, basically, what has to be done uh, is to restore Jews to the Holy Land uh, from all over the world, restore the Jews to the Holy Land, which of course at that time was you know, part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and once you get all these Jews uh, assembled uh, in what is today Palestine, then um, you could help them rebuild, rebuild the temple. In this case, you would have the third temple, there having been a first and a second temple. So you would, you would help them rebuild the third temple. And so, so you would be basically split. You would be pro-Old Testament in your mind, and then you would claim to be Christian, which is a contradiction. At any rate, uh, Darby came to the United States and Canada back during our Civil War period, i.e. the 1860s. So Darby preached uh, this doctrine of apocalyptic death cult, and uh, a group of ministers in Canada and in um, the United States, and I assume back in England, and uh, maybe, maybe even out in Australia and New Zealand, I have no idea about those, I haven't studied them, but within the United States and Canada, we have the rise of groupings of ministers, preachers, who then assembled into large conferences of preachers, big ones, uh, in the 18, later 1800s, 1880s, 1890s, and were preaching or teaching this type of uh, apocalyptic theology. We can call it Armageddon theology. So that's how Darby, as an English fellow, uh, came over to the U.S., influenced certain circles in the ministry, and that's how this, we can call it eschatology, that would be the technical word for end times preaching. This eschatology then spread very widely in the United States, particularly in the South, but also uh, in the North, but particularly in the South, um, but also in the North, uh, even up in as far as uh, New York and, and such. So that's the origins then of this apocalyptic cult uh, in the United States. By the late 1800s, 1880s, 1890s, it had really picked up uh, quite a bit of steam. Bible schools were started, seminaries were started, universities or colleges were started, Bible colleges. So this, this eschatology, this dispensationalism as an ideology spread widely in the United States, um, and some large denominations picked up 
this eschatology and adopted it. For example, what's called the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a whole grouping of Southern Baptist churches, millions of people, by the way, adapted this eschatology, uh, this end times idea. So that's, uh, Mike, how things started originally from a kind of a weirdo cult in Surrey (laughs) run by a banker who liked to travel in the Middle East. And uh, they picked up this uh, defrocked priest and uh, got him going on it. I wonder what, what, it clearly has managed to gain a massive foothold in the United States and it's having a a huge political implications, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it doesn't seem to have, at least overtly, it doesn't seem to have got the same kind of foothold in other countries, including the United Kingdom. In fact, uh, overtly, I mean, uh, because, I mean, if we look at at some of the names uh, from early 20th century politics uh, and and, uh, and writings and so on, people that were in the UK, at least Christian Zionist, William Wilberforce, William Blackstone, Sir Mark Sykes, Sykes Pico, of course, and uh, Balfour, Sir Lord Arthur Balfour, of course. So, so they, of course, absolutely key in the establishment of the the, the modern state of Israel. Um, so, so clearly that type of thinking still existed in the UK, but not in quite the same overt way that, that it does in the United States. Why is it, why is it so open and overt in in the US? Do you think, and not in other countries? Well, yeah, I certainly agree with your group of uh, folks in the UK. Balfour, as I understand it, grew up in a dispensationalist family. So, uh, and <laughs> Sykes, Sykes was um, eccentric to the extreme uh, and combined all sorts of odd ideas. But in the United States, it, uh, in the, it was a feature in the South in the deep countryside and little churches. And as you saw, this fellow... Uh, prancing around on the stage uh, it, it, in the Deep South. He may have been in Tennessee. I forget where he's from. Um, but it, it became very popular and entrenched uh, in rural areas um, and in some metropolitan areas. But uh, it was more of a rural phenomenon of um, basically less well-educated or less educated uh, people. And uh, on the other hand, in the late 1880s, 90s, under Blackstone's influence, wealthy business persons, upper middle class, middle class persons in urban areas began to support the idea of the restoration of Jews to the Holy Land, Palestine. And maybe some of this was because of the uh, uh, pogroms in Russia in the 1870s, 80s, uh, Jews were treated very badly, etc. So naturally, there was a sympathy for mistreated people and human rights. But this was mixed with this weird pseudo-biblical concept of the apocalypse at the end of time and, and end times. And But to trigger end times, you had to move Jewish people physically to the Holy Land. This is their scenario. And then that speeds up. Uh, Armageddon. So you had, in answer to your question, you had this weird cult ideology deeply deeply entrenched in the South. And then also in the North, particularly in wealthy business circles. I assume they're trying to be 
pious people or, you know, look pious in front of the community, et cetera, et cetera. But it was uh, also in uh, important uh, business and financial circles on the Gentile side. Of course, among our Jewish population, Zionism way back was was not looked at well at all. Uh, American Jews are back then were more reformed from the reform group, which was assimilated into American Americanism, let's say. So uh, among this Gentile group of bankers and industrialists and the Rockefellers, for example, and other famous people, uh, lobbied Congress, lobbied the president, Pettison Harrison back in that day, and also later after World, during and after World War I, uh, lobbied Congress uh, to promote uh, the Balfour Doctrine and the restoration of Jews uh, to Palestine, the Holy Land. So it, it's operative uh, at various various levels of, of our society. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a detailed sociological study would be interesting to see, and there have been a number um, of those done. The next thought is, because you mentioned uh, Jewish Zionism here, if we're looking in the modern context at, at politics in the U.S. today, uh, which, I mean, what is the relationship? Is there a relationship between Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism? And which, if there isn't, which uh, of those two sort of uh, groupings has the most influence in, in Washington? Well, uh, my, all my Jewish friends are from a Reformed tradition, so they're, anti <laughs> they're militantly anti-Zionist. Uh, but this is how that breaks down. Um, at, during World War II and the horrors of the Nazi era in Germany, um, even some of the anti-Zionist Jewish community uh, decided, well, darn, uh, to protect Jewish people, we better support, support Zionism. So therefore, within the Jewish community itself, this comes from the Bilt Biltmore Conference, so-called in 1942, is when all of the different uh, Jewish points of view merged together to advocate for a, a Jewish state um, in, in the Middle East. The Jewish Zionist lobby, and when we say Zionist, let's define it. In 1897, in Basel, Switzerland, there was a meeting of international Zionism, that is, international Jewish groups that, were, that wanted to create a physical state in the Holy Land. This was a famous Basel conference in Switzerland of 1897. And uh, I would point out that this is a political project. This type of Zionism is not religious, although it uses religious symbolism. This is a political movement to create a state, right? A state is a political thing. Back in 1890s, in the 1890s, as I said before, there was this Blackstone-influenced, Darby-influenced grouping of Americans who were for restoration of Jews to the Holy Land. Thus, these two groups came into contact and supported each other. And um, therefore, the wealthy patrons of the Zionists, uh, in the, which it's traditional that the wealthy patrons of Zionism uh, uh, 
are a driving force uh, in the whole thing. It wouldn't a pol this political project wouldn't exist without huge backing from uh, important philanthropic uh, Jewish financial interests. And this goes back even to the 1820s and 30s. I mentioned Drummond was a banker. So within the United States, then you have the what we call the pro-Israel lobby. Um, that's the best way to phrase it because it's that's not taken as anti-Semitic. If you say Jewish lobby, that can be taken as an anti-Semitic phrase. So it's always best to use the phrase pro-Israel lobby. Within the pro-Israel lobby, you have the Jewish community, parts of it, or most of it, and these uh, Christian fundamentalists of either the humanitarian type or the dispensationalist type. The dispensationalist type are the most politically active. And uh, you can see that uh, in, in Congress uh, and, and even in the White House, uh, the actions of the dispensationalists, uh, preachers, etc., in the Republican Party. Particularly back in the 80s, it was Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and a whole cluster of uh, fundamentalist preachers who got involved with the Republican Party. The party had, the party had never been uh, penetrated by this weird, uh, weird culture, uh, but uh, it did penetrate in the 1980s while I served in the Senate. I was in the Senate 1981 to 1992, um, and I saw this firsthand. And also I saw firsthand the uh, alliance between this Christian Zionist preachers, etc., and their, their flocks, and the uh, Jewish Zionist uh, types, particularly the, the New York types, which have all the money and all that, and um, organizations in Washington, D.C., like APAC, American Israel Political Action Committee, very influential. Uh, ZOA, Zionist Organization of America, very influential on the Hill. And then on the fundamentalist side, you had John Hagee, Reverend, so-called Reverend John Hagee, Pentecostalist, and he had an organization and has an organization called CUFI, C-U-F-I, you can Google it, Christians United for Israel, very important uh, pressure group in Congress, actually extremely important uh, pressure group in Congress. And you can go to their website and learn all about, <laughs> learn all about, learn all about them. There is no um, I want to point this out. There is no conspiracy at all here. These are open public um, groups, what we call lobbyists, lobby groups, or influence groups. So there's, no, there's nothing to do with the conspiracy here. It's just a bunch of very well-organized people organized into a lobby to then pressure Congress. Uh, and as I indicated before, we saw 97, they have the Senate without a problem. And uh, the House is, uh, you have the Speaker of the House uh, harping uh, on this stuff. So that's the psychology, Mike, uh, in, in Congress. Uh, the psychology is uh, this uh, delusional uh, uh, support for, um, for Israel and its uh, various genocidal policies, which, of course, you've had the genocidal policies beginning in 1948 with the first Nakba. This is just a continuation. Some people call it the second Nakba, but I, you can also consider it a continuous Nakba. Back in 48, uh, you had 
strong, you know, congressional support. And the President of the United States, Harry Truman, uh, supported Israel very firmly, uh, recognized Israel very firmly uh, and quickly uh, after it was announced, its formation was announced. Um, on the other hand, uh, back then, the military and others were concerned about um, an unbalanced policy in the Middle East. Uh, and this is an important point to I really want to make from an American point of view uh, or another other points of view, other major powers, what do you have in the Middle East? You've got Israel, you've got the Arab states, you've got Iran, Persia, and you have Turkey. So you have four different uh, powers out in that region. And to promote peace, you would want to balance, uh, have a balanced policy and promote peace. But unfortunately, with this support base from the Christian Zionists, our military-industrial complex, the neoconservative policy network, um, and, and assorted others uh, are able to push this policy and support um, this policy in the mi Middle East, the pro-Israel policy. That's the political, the, the open political situation. What about the so-called deep state, the, the State Department, uh, Department of Defense, and so on, and the, and the officials that are in, in these kinds of organizations that are drive, that are also partly driving foreign policy? What, what's, how much influence does this feed into those uh, groups and the intelligence agencies and this kind of thing? That's hard to say um, about the actual religious beliefs of people in the military-industrial complex. Um, starting with the State Department, of course, uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s uh, and 60s uh, and 70s, the State Department was uh, had a very balanced, uh, people criticized it for being pro-Arab, right? Um, so the State Department back then was more balanced or balanced on the Middle East policy. Even General Marshall, when he was Secretary of State back in the late 1940s, etc., they had a very balanced concept uh, of policy, which actually originally included a one-state solution with everybody, Muslim, Christians, and Jews in one state of Israel, mm -hmm. not a partition. But um, the military-industrial complex, of course, the main motivating a force is money, uh, con contracts, and billions of dollars in contracts, and billions, trillions of dollars in contracts. So it's really a money thing. Uh, whether, uh, whether, oh, the the Pentagon is uh, has some religious concept or not, I don't know. Although they do allow, um, I, I, they do allow some of this stuff in the military academies. So you do wonder what the officer corps is really uh, composed of, um, you know, what the officer corps, are, what their religious views are, uh, what, or if they're just cynical and they just want a good job and a bunch of stars on their shoulders. Uh, the State Department uh, situation has been changed over the, oh, since the 70s and 80s. There was a kind of a purge of the old school Arabists, that's what they were called, the old ambassadors, ambassadors to the Middle East, to Egypt or Turkey, and the experienced ambassadors and diplomats uh, have been weeded out or uh, not replaced when they retire with similar balanced thinking. And so you've had a, a trend for 40 years now in the Department of State bureaucracy for a, a pro-Israel uh, type of uh, 
uh, approach. And of course, you know, we have Tony Blinken, who's Jewish uh, from Kiev, originally the family, as our Secretary of State. Uh, and his father was a diplomat in the State Department, friend of George Soros. And then his grandfather, Maurice uh, Blinken, was uh, uh, a founder of the American Palestine Institute in the late in the 1945-6, which advocated for um, Israel. So his grandfather was a leading Zionist uh, promoter uh, uh, back in the late 40s. So that's, <laughs> if you want to take a, a look at the State Department, that's where we have ended up. We did have, it's true, um, Madeleine Albright and Kissinger too, as, uh, but uh, the staffing now is much more uh, pro-Israel inclined, whether whatever religious or ethnic group they happen to belong to. It's also in Washington, of course, good to, <laughs> go along to get along. I mean, if your job depends on you being pro-Israel, you better be pro-Israel, right? Same with our, our news media. So there's a go along to get along attitude uh, in the so-called uh, deep state, uh, the various institutions. Um, and you do have to wonder, well, and also I would say in the early days too, CIA was uh, pretty much pro-Arab, we could say although people like Angleton and some of the others were pro-Israel. So within intelligence circles in the old days, um, there was a fairly high amount of skepticism about um, Israel. Uh, and that was shared by the old-time military, like General Marshall and, and, and others in our military. However, as you say, here we are today in 2023, and uh, basically the deep state in, in some ways has been sort of Zionized uh, at the higher levels. I would maybe people at the um, working level, analysts and such at the working level would not share that pro-Israel point of view. But if you're an analyst at the working level <laughs> and you are too objective about all this, uh, you may not you know, have a job or you may not get your promotion. So there's kind of this insidious uh, thing going on within the deep state uh, bureaucracies that, you know, you, you better you better go along or, you know, you're not going to have a very good career uh, if you don't. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very interesting, Cliff, because uh, in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right up until the mid-80s, probably maybe even later, Britain also was taking a pro-Arab uh, position on many things, votes in the in the security, in the, in the UN and so on. Uh, and suddenly in more recent decades, that has changed 180 degrees and we I still haven't managed to get to the bottom of where that policy shift happened uh, and you're saying that similar kind of thing seems to have happened in the United States so so you know I'm not asking for an answer to that question but but that's an interesting little data point back in the 1980s when I was in the Senate on the Foreign Relations Committee about 1985 in the mid 80s uh, you started to have a noticeable um, uh, presence on the Capitol Hill of, of pro-Israel lobbyists and particularly the so-called Christian right and uh, <clears throat> the influence of people like uh, Reverend Jerry Falwell and Reverend Pat Robertson, etc. Now, Bibi Netanyahu at the time in the mid-80s was an ambassador at the UN and uh, he, he would come down to Washington and visit and talk with people and people would go up uh, staff people in the Senate will go up to see him. Uh, so therefore, Bibi uh, has deep experience in, uh, let's say, manipulating opinion and stuff on Capitol Hill. 
so I noticed that trend in the by about the mid 1980s, and then it accelerated from there. Uh, I also uh, I'm not an expert on uh, uh, British internal politics, but I do notice that uh, the so-called Henry Jackson Society was founded in London, and that's a neoconservative group of British people, as well as uh, American neoconservatives. So what you saw in the 1980s, uh, which I document in my book, uh, you see emerging of the Christian right fundamentalists that we've been talking about, and the neoconservatives. Uh, the neoconservatives are basically uh, Cold War Truman Zionists. They uh, emerged after World War II. They had been Trotskyists uh, before in the 30s. But after World War II, this group of intellectuals, the neoconservatives, centered around um, the American Jewish Committee and its publication and counter magazine. So you have a fusion then in the 1980s, a uh, stronger and stronger fusion of the neoconservatives with the Christian right. The neoconservatives jumped the Democratic Party uh, because President Jimmy Carter in the late 70s was attempting to have a peace policy in the Middle East. So the former neoconservatives, who most of whom had been Democrats, hawkish Democrats, uh, bolted to the Republican Party and penetrated the Reagan administration. So uh, then during the Reagan administration, they focused their efforts uh, and on the Pentagon in particular, in order to protect Israel, of course, uh, with some presence in the State Department. So Mike, in answer to your question, I, what I saw myself in the Senate firsthand was the shift uh, toward a more pronounced pro-Zionism um, in the, in the mid-80s and forward and uh, during the Reagan administration and then subsequent administrations. I'd be interested in your views of RFK Jr. and his uh, open acknowledgement that Israel is effectively, or his, his claim that Israel is effectively there as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, what, did, what was the word he used as a, acting almost a, like an aircraft carrier in, in the Middle East? Uh, and I'd just be interested in your views of, of whether this, exp this support for Israel is, uh, or to what degree it is there to, to deal with the, the China Belt and Road uh, and, and the whole uh, BRICS initiative. Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, very frank statement uh, about U.S.-Israel uh, relations, or at least his, uh, his view of it, um, represents the general thinking in Washington, D.C. That is to say, Israel is an aircraft carrier or, or an American proxy state or a martyr state in the empire. If you go back to the Roman Empire, Israel would be a, a mar what they used to call a martyr state on the, on the borderlines of the empire. So in geopolitical terms, um, what we see really, if we compare this to British imperialism in the 19th century under Palmerston, and we take a look at Palmerston's um, and his uh, son-in-law, Ashley Cooper, and Palmerston's use of religious, Christian religious groups that are, were for restoration of uh, Jews to Palestine, to the Holy Land. And Palmerston was aiming his geopolitics against the Russian Empire, uh, and uh, 
he wanted to be a bit friendly with the Turkish or the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so today, uh, we can see that, as you mentioned, the American and NATO geopolitics trying to uh, break up or interfere with the BRICS um, uh, strategy or the BRICS uh, cooperation agreements. There's over 150 countries that are members of BRICS. And it, of course, it runs east-west, uh, even tr into the um, Europe. And uh, you have two things going on here. Uh, the U.S.-NATO war against Ukraine is blocking uh, BRICS uh, entry uh, into Europe uh, via the geographic space that was formerly Ukraine. We'll have to <laughs> see how that geographic space works out. But the idea was to block Russia and block China uh, in any connection with, um, with Europe via Eastern Europe. These would be land routes, and this would be railroads. So we're talking about railroads here. And we're also talking about pipelines, uh, hydrocarbons, and all that sort of thing, natural gas and oil and all that. So yes, indeed, uh, the policy is intended to uh, uh, block, break up, the uh, BRICS grouping, which is growing, actually, it's uh, getting larger and larger, and uh, also to block uh, Russia um, and, and from relations with Europe. I will explain one point that uh, actually I wrote this in an article back in 2014 when the Ukraine crisis was heating up, Maidan and all. At that time, I said, uh, for an article in Global Times, uh, which was a Beijing paper, I said that the neocons want to break relation want to break the ability of the United States to have a decent relationship with Russia and to have a decent relationship with China. That is to say that if the US, Russia, and China all get together, at least on some global issues, um, there, there could be stability and some progress in various parts of the world if all three of these major powers, including Europe too, could could agree. But by disturbing or breaking the relationship between the US and Russia and US and China, that precludes um, cooperation on the Middle East. And in the neoconservatives view, their first and foremost loyalty is to Israel. So they saw that if they can break up the US relationship with Russia, break up the US relationship with China, that, that helps Israel, because then the three major powers in Europe uh, won't get together and impose some sort of a peace uh, on the Middle East that would uh, uh, maybe involve a two-state solution, for example, and uh, uh, prevent this sort of genocide that's now going on uh, in Gaza and also the West Bank, but, uh, but particularly in Gaza. So yes, uh, Mike, it's, um, it's a big geopolitical play uh, on the world stage. And in my view, quite a, quite a negative and the wrong way to go. I think I'd like to invite you to, to, to join us again at some point in the very near future to, to carry on this conversation. Uh, that would be fantastic. Before we go, though, the book that I've been reading is uh, uh, Dark Crusade. It's available as a, as a soft cover and as, a, as a, an ebook. Where else can people find you where, if they want to follow your other writings on this topic? Where, where can they find that? Um, <clears throat> sure, Mike. It's been a great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, interested uh, readers can uh, find my 
columns, which are a, a few columns per month uh, for the China Focus uh, news site in Beijing, China Focus. And uh, I have a column there uh, that appears <laughs> anywhere from two to three times, sometimes four times a month, depending on the international situation. So China Focus in Beijing is one place. And I also uh, have a column, a similar column for Beijing Review in Beijing, but that appears uh, not, not as frequently as in uh, China Focus. So I hope, hope people would uh, uh, enjoy reading my book and I hope people would enjoy reading my columns in China Focus. Interestingly, I, I'm freer to publish my columns in uh, China than I am in the United States. <laughs>